Hello again and welcome back to the New Discourses Podcast. This is James Lindsay. As you might recall, we're working our way through the first queer theory paper, Thinking Sex, Notes for a Radical Theory of the Politics of Sexuality by Gail Rubin. This was a paper written in 1984. We're now on the third part of this series. We've already kind of covered, in my opinion, the interesting parts of this paper where we see what queer theory is really about. I don't want to spend a lot of time summarizing this. I kind of just want to rip through it, to be honest with you. We've already spent a lot of time talking about Gail Rubin in this stupid paper. But to kind of summarize, queer theory, Gail Rubin has framed out, is a, uh, like she says, a radical approach to the politics of sexuality. Uh, and in fact, I say that it's queer Marxism. It is, I should emphasize that otherwise, queer Marxism. It is using the idea of normalcy, as we heard very, very clearly in the previous two episodes, but especially the last one on this paper. It is using the idea of normalcy like a form of bourgeois private property that keeping with the Communist Manifesto, which is also known as the Communist Confession of Faith, uh, must be abolished. And so queer theory takes aim at abolishing the normal. We heard that explicitly from a queer theorist in 2016 at the beginning of the last episode. So it's not that I'm making this up. It's not that I'm even inferring it from what's obviously in their writing. It's that their goal is to um, abolish normal. We hear we heard that the primary tool by which they do that is complicating that which we consider normal. To say that our idea of normalcy is too restrictive. It doesn't capture everything, and therefore it's actually nonsensical. In this paper so far, we've heard Gail Rubin defend child pornography as though the idea of nude children is irrational or, or ridiculous to see as um, something that needs to be prosecuted criminally. She goes into the point of making the, the bad point of saying, well, you wouldn't be able to tell because an anatomy textbook might be illegal under child pornography laws, etc. This is a typical thing. She tries to take apart um, age of consent laws and say that they don't make any sense, but they create injustices. This is the typical maneuver. Uh, she openly def defends what she calls cross-generational encounters um, and man-boy love and the National Association for Man-Boy Love or however that goes, North American Man-Boy Love Association, NAMBLA. So she actually defends pedophilia in this paper openly. She defends fetish and kink openly saying that it's basically there's a Saturday Night Live. I really wish I could play the whole thing here for you, but it's really, it, you really need, need to go look it up. It's about this character. They created uh, sex ed, Ed Vincent, the sex educator. He's got his little accent and he's from New York and he's going to have his sex ed symposiums. And his whole punchline is that they say really weird stuff. And he says, is that weird? Who's to say? Is that weird? Who's to say? And so what it is, is to pollute this idea that there's normal versus weird, normal versus abnormal. And in Ruben's own language, she goes deeply into the idea of pervert, or perversion of perverts. She talks about perverts openly uh, and defends the idea of perverts, even that perverts are excluded from jobs. And the last section of the last um, part of this three-part series, the middle, the middle one, we actually heard her saying that she thinks it's a bit ridiculous that we would have increasingly strict requirements on people who are, say, teachers or are in positions of kind of higher office to not be perverts, that we keep perverts out of those positions. And 
this is sort of what they're doing. They're assaulting normal by kind of polluting it. We listened about um, that that th- article from 2016 talking about this professor whose last name was Ward, uh, a professor of gender and sexuality studies, saying that we need to complicate the idea of heterosexuality by saying that sometimes it includes homosexuality too. And so we're going to complicate it. What's normal for homo- for heterosexuals? Well, we're going to ambiguate upon that. We're going to make it more complex. We're going to uh, complicate literally the idea of straightness to include some gayness. And of course, what this is, is a power grab. And I explained that last time. So if you ha- didn't get it, let me just say it again. This is a power grab. It doesn't sound like a power grab. It sounds like weirdo scholars just screwing around uh, in kind of weird corner cases and trying to make more hay of them. You could just say, hey, you know, okay, the dude's bisexual or he's gay and covering it up and he's in denial or whatever. But no, it has to be that we're going to have a new form of heterosexuality that's more complicated that includes some homosexuality. And we're going to theorize that in order to complicate heterosexuality because we're going to abolish the normal. And the reason it's a power grab is, is that if we adopt this paradigm, we have to rely upon queer theorists who have seized this power to tell us what's legitimately heterosexual, what's homosexual, when is it crossed the line? Nobody can tell except them. And so we have some idea then of how queer theory operates as a Marxist theory of the normal, where normal is considered to be a kind of property created by the normal to decide who gets to be considered normal and who's not normal and therefore is oppressed. And that includes, as she keeps pointing out, kinksters and pedos, uh, transvestites and transsexuals she keeps raising, um... And what we saw was this gradual erosion by banking off of the gay civil rights movement. That's what the queer theory or the queer agenda did was it latched on like a parasite to the gay civil rights movement. And it has slowly implemented its agenda bit by bit by bit. I likened it in the last episode to cutting out the, it's like we have a chain link fence to keep the weirdos out and it's clipped links in the fence one by one by one you can hear those links getting clipped back here in 1984 even in this first paper in queer theory even earlier in the michelle foucault for example whom she cites you hear those things getting you see can see those things getting clipped and then here in 2022 we can actually see the results of having clipped out some of those things and i also made the analogy repeatedly that the way this works is that sometimes our social uh, programs or social views are too restrictive. Sometimes they are oppressive or repressive, sometimes for good reasons, but also sometimes for bad reasons. Liberal people tend to recognize this and they want to ask the question why. And then what you have is these leftists, the queer agenda is literally taking this, do you say, you know, conservatives point to liberals and say, no, we can't open that up because there's a slippery slope. And this is actually invoked explicitly in the paper. Ruben explicitly talks about this. And, you know, the conservatives say we can't do that. It's a slippery slope. And the liberals fight back. It's not necessarily a slippery slope. We don't have to be so reactionary. We can actually have a gay civil rights movement or whatever. And meanwhile, these leftist queer theorists are literally lubing up the slope with the slipperiest silicone lube you can find. Uh, And now what do we have? Groomer schools. What do we have? Drag queen story hour. What do we have? Uh, Just what is a woman? The whole thing has just unraveled because the leftists have been greasing up the slope because they live in a completely social constructivist paradigm that requires the slope to be slippery. We've covered that multiple times, so I'm not going to go through it again right now. 
So that should frame out. We're now diving into the third part of this paper. Um, we've got about 10 pages to get through still. And uh, this is the part, I don't remember exactly how it goes from where I cut it, but this is the part where queer theory starts to twist the knife on feminism. Uh, in particular, queer theory can be thought of as a very Marxist identity politics of sexuality being grafted onto sex-positive feminism and destroying sex-negative radical feminism and uh, twisting everything into the further Marxist and postmodern, I really should say the postmodern Marxist, um, because Marxism was a very modernist-type theory that was very much rooted in the idea of material conditions structuring reality, and what we actually end up seeing is that cultural and structural conditions, knowledge and discourses, language and power, structure reality, a structuralist position coming out of postmodern thought, which these Marxists took up, and they decided that structural determinism rather than material determinism is the key determinism that shapes society and dictates power. And so queer theory is deeply embedded in that. It's an extraordinarily postmodern and an extraordinarily Marxist approach to sexuality. So queer Marxism, heavily postmodern, heavily reliant on Foucault, Michel Foucault being a gay kinkster who was oppressed for this in France, probably for some good reasons and some bad reasons, and who developed an entire theory of the so-called history of sexuality that um, Rubin kind of recreates here in this paper in order to try to justify his perversions, which openly included pedophilia. And so Nietzsche's remark that the philosophers don't really do philosophy so much as they... Um, rationalize their own pathologies comes to mind every time we think about Michel Foucault and queer theory in general. And it's very hard as we go through this paper to, to hide the fact it defends pedophilia. It openly calls for the uh, removal of age of consent laws. It um, defends child pornography uh, and so on. So it's very difficult to, and, and then the kinky stuff, whatever you think of that, I mean, you can see that Gail Rubin clearly does not know where kinky is appropriate and where kinky is inappropriate. The idea of consenting adults doing consenting things in private is not something that works for the queer theorist. Everything has to be blurred. Everything has to be um, complicated, as they like to say. Everything has to be questioned. And the goal is to tear down the normal so that these people get to put themselves in the center of deciding what is going to be considered acceptable and unacceptable. It's a complete power grab hiding about hiding underneath obvious vulnerable narcissism and sexual deviance. And I'm a pretty open-minded guy, and I'll still say outright sexual deviance, especially when it gets to the kids stuff, which is just unbelievable that they actually have been putting this in print for almost 40 years or more than 40 years. And somehow it's just been, I was, you know, um, Brett Weinstein said that these disciplines have been given something like academic or intellectual affirmative action. He said that back in 2018 when we were recording for the Evergreen documentary that Mike Nana did. And this isn't even like intellectual affirmative action. Like you have to turn such a blind eye to let this have, have gone on for this long. This is like search your hard drives kind of stuff that these people were publicly writing and the universities were enabling and defending. It's absolutely unbelievable. But we turn now to the third exciting part and conclusion of our exploration of thinking sex by Gail Rubin, the first queer theory paper from which all of this new radical politics of sexuality um, came. And we start off now in a section about sexual conflicts. You'll realize that she's already created, if you recall, 
recreated a lot of the ideas of Marx. She's already talked about sexual stratification of society and the oppression that comes with it. And now we're going to frame that in terms of conflict. Conflict theory uh, across lines of stratification in society is what Marxism really delivers. And she starts with a quote in every one of these sections uh, from somebody else to frame it out. These have been quite insightful so far here. This is a quote from 1981 by Jeffrey Weeks. And she says, the moral panic, or he says, I should say, the moral panic crystallizes widespread fears and anxieties and often deals with them not by seeking the real causes of the problems and conditions which they demonstrate, but by displacing them onto folk devils in an identified social group, often the immoral or the degenerate. One might say the deplorable, right? Sexuality has been a, a peculiar Sorry, I did this wrong. Sexuality has had a peculiar centrality in such panics, and sexual, quote, deviants have been omnipresent scapegoats. The sexual system, Gail Rubin now tells us, is not a monolith. I did it again. I can't even read today. The sexual system is not a monolithic, omnipotent structure. There are continuous battles over the, def the definitions, evaluations, arrangements, privileges, and costs of sexual behavior. Political struggle over sex assumes characteristic forms. So she's framing out that there's a existing conflict theory around sex uh, sexuality that's very complicated. Sexual ideology, she says, plays a crucial role in sexual experience. So now we're going to do it in terms of ideology. Remember, ideology for Marx means the set of justifications that the powerful and privileged give for why society is ordered in their benefit. They get to set the ideology. They get to set the meta narrative. They get to explain why they get to be in positions of power and privilege that other people are excluded from. And they weave a mythology that mystifies reality so that people can't see the real causes of their problems. And here, Gail Rubin says sexual ideology plays a crucial role in sexual experience. Consequently, definitions and evaluations of sexual conduct are objects of bitter contest. The confrontations between early gay liberation and the psychiatric establishment are the best examples of this kind of fight, example, singular, of this kind of fight. But there are constant skirmishes. Recurrent battles take place between the primary producers of sexual ideology, the churches, the family, the shrinks, and the media, and the groups who, whose experience they name, distort, and endanger. So here we have the sexually privileged who control the churches, the family, the shrinks, the psychiatrists that is, and the media, and they get to name what is appropriate and inappropriate sexual behavior. They get to decide what is uh, acceptable and what is deviant. And they do so in a way that names, distorts, and endangers. You're, here we're starting to hear that now omnipresent call to harm and danger. We're harming people. We're putting people in danger by the way we talk about things, by the way we discuss things, by not giving them their way all the time. The legal regulation of sexual conduct is another battleground. Lysander Spooner dissected the system of state-sanctioned moral coercion over a century ago in a text inspired primarily by the temperance campaigns. In Vices Are Not Crimes, A Vindication of Moral Liberty, Spooner argued that government should protect its citizens against crime, but that it is foolish, unjust, and tyrannical to legislate against vice. 
He discusses, discusses rationalization still heard today in defense of legalized moralism, that, quote, vices, Spooner is referring to drink, but homosexuality, prostitution, or recreational drug use may be substituted, leads to crimes, and should therefore be prevented, and that those who practice, quote, vice are non mentis and should therefore be protected from their self-destruction by state-accomplished ruin, and that children must be protected from supposedly harmful knowledge. So a lot of stuff is getting mixed together here. You can see the leap, right? Whatever you think of Spooner and the, the, I, these ideas about vices, you can see a lot here in that par- in that parenthetical comment. Spooner is referring to drink, but homosexuality, prostitution, or recreational drug use may be substituted as though they're all equivalent to drink. And of course, with the war on drugs, you hear that. But homosexuality, prostitution, alcohol, these are not all exactly the same thing. And there's not exactly the same kinds of issues or parameters, uh, especially we'll point to prostitution where um, there are actually a lot of crimes associated with that. If you complete, I mean, there just are, it's a, it's a risky situation. Um, it's not a situation that is attendant to a lot of good things. Um, drugs are also in some ways complicated in this regard. So there's a lot going on there. She says though, it's worded very, very well that those who practice so-called vice are not in sound mind and therefore should be protected from their self-destruction by state accomplished ruin. And this is obviously, she's correct, a huge battleground. But she frames it this way, the discourse on victimless crimes has not changed much. Legal structure over sex law will continue until basic freedoms of sexual action and expression are guaranteed. There's a lot wrapped up. She's not necessarily talking about the old buggery. She's not necessarily talking about people engaging in sodomy or oral sex behind closed doors between consenting adults. She's named explicitly prostitution. She's also, throughout the paper, explicitly named uh, cross-generational encounters, by which she means pedophilia. These are not the same. These are not the same. But for the queer theorist, they can't distinguish. They seem to lack the capacity to understand that these contexts are actually fundamentally different for pretty damn good reasons. These aren't victimless crimes. A 14-year-old having sex with an adult and claiming that he or she liked it is not a victimless crime. We have had an adult rape a child who is a victim of that, even if it was enjoyed, because there is a violation there of the fact that the 14-year-old has not developed the capacity to legally consent or even really fully consent to what's going on. There are psychological damages involved in, in having children involved in inappropriate relationships with adults. They're not the same. The legal struggle, she says, over sex law will continue until basic freedoms of sexual action and expression are guaranteed. So she says we're going to keep fighting until we get what we want. This requires the repeal of all sex laws except those few that deal with actual, not statutory coercion. Catch that? So an adult having sex with a 14-year-old is statutory coercion, therefore we should need to repeal those laws. She doesn't like statutory rape laws. And it entails abolition of vice squads whose job it is to enforce legislative morality. 
In addition to the definitional and legal wars, there are less obvious forms of sexual political conflict, which I call the territorial and border wars. The process uh, processes by which erotic minorities form communities and the forces that seek to inhibit them lead to struggle over the nature and boundaries of sexual zones. So right now she's now labeled out th she's laid out three different domains of sexual conflict. The first of these domains is that the powerful and privileged get to define what is and is not normal. The powerful and privileged get to enforce laws backing up the morality that they prefer. And now there's the idea of community formation, for example, um, around these very ideas and what that means. Dissident sexuality, she says, is rarer and more closely monitored in small towns and rural areas. Consequently, metropolitan life continually beckons to young perverts. Well, get out of city, says Jack Posobiec. Sexual migration creates concentrated pools of potential partners, friends, and associates. It enables individuals to create adult kin-like networks in which to live. But there are many barriers which sexual migrants have to overcome. According to the mainstream media and popular prejudice, the marginal sexual worlds are bleak and dangerous. They are portrayed as impoverished, ugly, and inhabited by psychopaths and criminals. New migrants must be sufficiently motivated to resist the impacts of such discouraging images. Attempts to counter negative propaganda with more realistic information generally meet with censorship. There are continuous ideological struggles over which representations of sexual communities make it into the popular media. Now, remember when you read this and you think, well, that kind of makes sense. Remember when you read this that queer theory explicitly does not want what they call, say, homonormativity. They don't want acceptance. They don't want normalcy. You hear Rubin actually kind of calling for it, but this is in 1984. By 2016, explicitly, you hear them arguing, that's not what we want. In 2022 and or 21, in this other paper that I've, I've gone through recently, you hear the same thing. It is not about creating acceptance that would reinforce homonormativity, that there are acceptable forms of being homosexual and unacceptable forms. So what you want is this kind of weird den of anything goes, and then for it to not be billed as a weird den of anything goes, including all the problems that come around with that. And this, in, this inability to say there is a distinction that matters, that distinguishes a civil rights movement from the degradation of society by deviants and perverts is at the heart of the error in queer theory. It can't distinguish between these. Of course, it's somebody else's fault because it's Marxist. It's the people creating the laws. It's the people enforcing what communities are going to look like. It's the people spinning the ideological narratives and claiming what definitions are going to be used and what descriptions are going to be used. It's always somebody else's fault. It's not the their own unwillingness to say that there is a real and material difference between deviance and, and, and perversion uh, and degeneracy and you know, generally pro-family, pro-social, healthy expressions of connection between people who happen to be of the same sex or whatever else it happens to be. Or as we have heard, and we'll, I think we will hear more uh, in this paper, I can't remember where it lays out, that there is a distinction between deciding that you want to have kinky sex in the privacy of your bedroom between consenting adults and 
wearing your leathers to in public or to work, which is advocated for and is happening here, at least in the public, not so much at work, although Dry Green Story Hour suggests that it is at work now for a lot of people. This inability to distinguish between things that are healthy and things that are unhealthy indicates that these people should not be given access to power. It indicates that these people should not be making decisions and these people should not have any say over children, which is exactly what Gail Rubin says they should have and which they have succeeded because of the blind eye academia turned to this largely, um, which they have succeeded in being able to accomplish, which also it's not just academia's fault. These people have been infiltrating the communists, more generally neo-communists or whatever, have been infiltrating many institutions throughout society. Somebody had to sign off on that. Probably it was somebody who went to college, though. Let's just be honest. Information, she says, on how to find, occupy, and live in, in the marginal sexual worlds is also suppressed. Navigational guides are scarce and inaccurate. In the past, fragments of rumor, distorted gossip, and bad publicity were the most available clues to the location of underground erotic communities. During the late 1960s and early 1970s, better information became available. Now groups like the Moral Majority want to rebuild the ideological walls around the sexual undergrounds and make transit in and out of them as difficult as possible. Migration is expensive. Transportation costs, moving expenses, and the necessity of finding new jobs and housing are economic difficulties that sexual migrants must overcome. How unfair. These are especially imposing barriers to the young who are often the most desperate to move. And you know that that narrative has been played up to the maximum, to the point now where, because of the agitations of queer theory and how much success they've had, especially in schools and state governments, you can actually get Child Protective Services involved in taking you taking a child out of the home because their parents aren't affirming their queer identities sufficiently. There are, however, roots into the economic, or sorry, erotic communities which mark trails through the propaganda thicket and provide some economic shelter along the way. Higher education can be a route for young people from affluent backgrounds. Hmm. Go to college, learn to be a pervert if you're rich. In spite of serious limitations, the information on sexual behavior at most colleges and universities is better than elsewhere, and most colleges and universities shelter small erotic networks of all sorts. Huh, there you go. 1984, Gail Rubin telling us, with no citation, that most colleges and universities in 1984 already shelter erotic networks of all sorts. Okay, how did this happen? Oh my gosh. Our universities went Marxist in the 70s. That's how. For poorer kids, the military is often the easiest way to get the hell out of wherever they are. Military prohibitions against homosexuality make this a perilous route. Not anymore. Although young queers continually attempt to use the armed forces to get out of intolerable hometown situations and closer to functional gay communities, they face the hazards of exposure, court-martial, and dishonorable discharge. Once in the cities, erotic populations tend to nucleate and to occupy some regular visible territory. Churches and other anti-vice forces constantly put pressure on local authorities to contain such areas, reduce their visibility, or to drive their inhabitants out of town. I freaking wonder why. 
There are periodic crackdowns in which local vice squads are unleashed on the populations they control. Gay men, prostitutes, and sometimes transvestites are sufficiently territorial and numerous to engage in intense battles with the cops over particular streets, parks, and alleys. Such border wars are usually inconclusive, but they result in many casualties. For most of this century, the sexual underworlds have been marginal and impoverished. You can see the vision for the cities that Gail Rubin has. Their residents subjected to stress and exploitation. The spectacular success of gay entrepreneurs in creating a variegated gay economy has altered the quality of life within the gay ghetto. The level of material comfort and social elaboration is achieved by the gay community in the last 15 years, sorry, that was achieved by the gay community in the last 15 years is unprecedented. But it is important to recall what happened to similar miracles. The growth of the black population in New York in the early part of the 20th century led to the Harlem Renaissance, but that period of creativity was doused by the Depression. The relative prosperity and cultural fluorescence of the ghetto might be equally fragile. Like blacks who fled the South for the metropolitan North, homosexuals may have merely traded rural problems for urban ones. That's a, there's a lot happening there that I don't even feel like I need to unpack. You heard the long pause after the Harlem Renaissance period of creativity was doused by the Depression. I mean, I don't think Gail Rubin's insinuating that the Depression... Um, was perpetrated to destroy the Harlem Renaissance, of course. What I do think is that uh, Gail Rubin believes that minority populations, as she sees them, should uh, not be in as precarious positions as virtually everything else is in something like a gigantic depression. It also is kind of funny because she's pointing out that there's fragility to these kind of minority communities that she believes need special protection, and that's not untrue. But it makes you wonder why they then endorse things like Build Back Better that are literally destroying exactly the kinds of prosperity necessary to support the things that they want to keep. But they don't. They want those things to be given special treatment and protection while everything else gets destroyed. That's the problem. That's the Marxist issue here. And they're being used. Gay pioneers, she says, occupied neighborhoods that were centrally located but run down. Consequently, they border poor neighborhoods. Gays, especially low-income gays, end up competing with other low-income groups for the limited supply of cheap and moderate housing. Okay, what does that have to do with them being gay? Nothing. Poor people compete for... Okay. In San Francisco, competition for low-cost housing has exacerbated both racism and homophobia and is one source of the epidemic of street violence against homosexuals. So, yeah, city problems trading rural problems for city problems. Maybe the rural problems weren't as bad as you thought. Instead of being isolated and invisible in rural settings, gay city, uh, city gays, sorry, city gays are now numerous and obvious targets for urban frustrations. In San Francisco, unbridled construction of downtown skyscrapers and high-cost condominiums is causing affordable housing to evaporate. Megabuck construction is creating pressure on all city residents. Poor gay renters are visible in low-income neighborhoods. Multi-millionaire contractors are not. The specter of the, quote, homosexual invasion is a convenient scapegoat which deflects attention from the banks, the planning commission, 
the political establishment, and the big developers. In San Francisco, the well-being of the gay community has become embroiled in the high-stakes politics of urban real estate. Following her argument here to its conclusion is that we shouldn't just like with um, gentrification, we shouldn't continue to develop things. We shouldn't continue to uh, improve or gentrify because it will hurt particular minority communities that should have special treatment. That's the, where her her argument goes. Downtown expansion affects all the territorial erotic underworlds. Part of me is like, oh no. In both San Francisco and New York, high investment construction and urban urban renewal have intruded on the main areas of prostitution, pornography, and leather bars. Oh no. Developers are salivating over Times Square, the Tenderloin, what is left of North Beach, and south of Market. Anti-sex ideology, obscenity law, prostitution regulations, and the alcoholic beverage codes are all being used to dislodge seedy adult businesses, sex workers, and leathermen. This is, I literally on an airplane reading this said, good, after I read that. I said good out loud, even though I didn't read this part out loud. Within 10 years, most of these areas will have been bulldozed and made safe for convention centers, international hotels, corporate headquarters, and housing for the rich. What are we getting rid of again? Uh, seedy adult businesses, sex workers, and leathermen. Shucks. The most important and consequential kind of sex conflict is what Jeffrey Weeks has termed the moral panic. Moral panics are the, quote, political moment of sex, in which diffuse attitudes are channeled into political action and from there into social change. The white slavery hysteria of the 1880s, the anti-homosexual campaigns of the 1950s, and the child pornography panic of the late 1970s were typical moral panics. All right. My feeling was that this white slavery hysteria thing was pushed a little far, and the argument's not on great basis. I think there's more basis for this anti-homosexual campaign thing. But then we get to the child pornography panic of the late 70s. That's a moral panic? No. In fact, she's brought that up repeatedly throughout this paper, from the very beginning of this paper. No, child pornography bad, Gail Rubin. Child pornography bad. It wasn't a moral panic. Child pornography is bad. It's not a difficult topic. This isn't hard to talk. It's not even challenging, except if you're a queer theorist. These people shouldn't be given power. They shouldn't be dictating policy, and they certainly shouldn't be dictating policy to have anything to do with children or in schools. Because sexuality in Western societies is so mystified, there's your Marxism, by the way, the wars over it are often fought at oblique angles, aimed at phony targets, conducted with misplaced passions, and are highly, intensely symbolic. Sexual activities often function as signifiers for personal and social apprehensions to which they have no intrinsic connection. During a moral panic, such fears attach to some unfortunate sexual activity or population. The media become ablaze with indignation. The public behaves like a rabid mob. The police are activated, and the state enacts new laws and regulations. When the Fuhrer has passed, some innocent erotic group has been decimated, and the state has extended its power into new areas of erotic behavior. Some innocent erotic group has been decimated. Well, maybe once in a while, but you just said child porn, Gail. 
we're dealing with massive groomer schools problems. And this is exactly the paragraph. Again, I think there's been one in each episode of this that would is going to be the justification for the counter to all this exposure of the fact that our schools are filled with groomers and our child entertainment industries are filled with groomers like at Disney. And it's only because sex is so mystified that we would think that some, I don't know, innocent erotic group like freaking groomers in schools might get cracked down upon. This is exactly what this will be framed as if the left is able to keep marching the way they are. They'll say that this okay groomer thing is a moral panic and such fears attached to some unfortunate sexual activity or population, like grooming kids. The media become ablaze with indignation. It'll also be trans, the trans grooming industry, really, because there's billions of dollars involved in that. Um will definitely be one of these things. This is going to be framed out as another right-wing moral panic. It's not a moral panic. And the media will become ablaze with indignation. The public behaves like a rabid mob. Yeah, you're grooming kids. You're not doing stuff with this thing saying, we're not going to groom kids. Don't worry, we're not going to groom kids. You are grooming kids. Everybody knows it now. So where does this all come from? Here's your first paper in Queer Theory. The system of sexual stratification provides easy victims who lack the power to defend themselves and a pre-existing apparatus for controlling their movements and curtailing their freedoms. So remember, we have different types of sex and how acceptable they are. That's a sexual stratification that she laid out. Society is layered into different strata of how oppressed you are based on your sex, sexual behaviors, sexual behaviors, um, your sexing, I guess, and... She's saying that, well, that creates a nice hierarchy for abuse. Typical Marxist conflict theory. The stigma against sexual dissidents renders them morally defenseless. Every moral panic has consequences on two levels. The target population suffers most, but everyone is affected by the social and legal changes. Moral panics rarely alleviate any real problem because they are aimed at chimeras and signifiers. They draw on the pre-existing discursive structure which invents victims in order to justify treating, quote, vices as crimes. Grooming children at schools not a vice. It's a crime. The criminalization of innocuous behaviors such as homosexuality, prostitution, obscenity, or recreational drug use is rationalized by portraying them as menaces to health and safety, women and children, national security, the family, or civilization itself. Well, here we are, aren't we? Even when activity is acknowledged to be harmless, it may be banned because it, it is alleged to, quote, lead to something ostensibly worse. Now we're going to the slippery slope thing. Another manifestation of the domino theory. Rather than slippery slope, she calls it domino. Great and mighty edifices have been built on the basis of such phantasms. Turns out they weren't phantasms, were they, Gail? Generally, the outbreak of a moral panic is preceded by an intensification of such scapegoating. Apparently, we didn't scapegoat hard enough, Gail. But did you see what she did here? Let me just point out, what does she do? You mix things together. The criminalization of innocuous behaviors such as homosexuality, okay, maybe, probably, depends on the circumstances, frankly, but let's go with okay. Prostitution, nope. Obscenity, well, in the eye of the beholder, but nope. And recreational drug use. Lots more maybe there. Depends on the drug to some degree. But you see, what we've done now is we've blurred 
things under the banner innocuous behavior. We lead off with homosexuality, which people who are into the gay civil rights movement are going to say, yeah, absolutely innocuous. Let consenting adults do what they want, stay out of their bedrooms. And then we go into prostitution, obscenity, recreational drug use, and just kind of mix those things together. So we start and end with ones that are, I think, a pretty fairly open and shut case within the right context. And then an ambiguous case, but in the middle, prostitution and obscenity, which would possibly include, I don't know, creating school books for children depicting sex acts between children and adults, which is what we're fighting in our libraries now. Gail says, it is always risky to prophecy. Let's see how she does. But it does not take much prescience to detect potential moral panics in two current developments. The attacks on sadomasochists by a segment of the feminist movement. Nope. Sorry, Gail. And the right's increasing use of AIDS to incite virulent homophobia. Well, a bit of a point there. You should ask Anthony Fauci about that, though. Feminist anti-pornography ideology has always contained an implied, and we're going to go after the feminists now, by the way, has always contained an implied and sometimes overt indictment of sadomasochism. The pictures of sucking and fucking that comprise the bulk of pornography may be unnerving to those who are not familiar with them, but it is hard to make a convincing case that such images are violent. All of the early anti-porn slide shows... Uh, slideshows, sorry. All of the early anti-porn slideshows used a highly selective sample of S&M imagery to sell a very flimsy analysis. Taken out of context, such images are often shocking. The shock value was mercilessly exploited to scare audiences into accepting the anti-porn perspective. So we're going to also defend porn, but primarily from feminists. Remember, queer theory grew out of a particularly Marxist theory of sexuality and gender and sex getting grafted into sex-positive radical feminism. A great deal of anti-porn propaganda implies sadomasochism is the underlying and essential, quote, truth toward which all pornography tends. I agree with Gail that it probably is not. Porn is thought to lead to S&M porn, which is in turn alleged to lead to rape. I agree with Gail and the sex-positive feminists on this point, that the sex-negative feminists are nutjobs in believing this. This is a just-so story that revitalizes the notion that sex perverts commit sex crimes, not normal people. There is no evidence that the readers of S&M erotica or practicing sadomasochists commit a disproportionate number of sex crimes. Anti-porn literature scapegoats an unpopular sexual minority and its reading material for social problems they do not create. And we have the same... The feminists do this with video games, they do it with TV and media, they did it with porn. I tend toward agreeing with uh, Gail Rubin on this particular point against sex-negative feminists, who I also don't like. I don't support Gail Rubin's queer theorist conclusions, but I certainly don't agree with anti uh, or sex negative feminism either, which is positively crazy in its own right. The use of S&M imagery in anti-porn discourse is inflammatory. It implies that the way to make the world safe for women is to get rid of sadomasochism. The use of S&M images in the movie Not a Love Story was on a moral par with the use of depictions of black men raping white women or of drooling old Jews pawing young Aryan girls to incite racist or anti-Semitic frenzy. 
Feminist rhetoric has a distressing tendency to reappear in reactionary contexts. Guess what The Handmaid's Tale was really about? For example, in, the 19, in 1980 and 1981, Pope John Paul II delivered a series of pronouncements reaffirming his commitment to the most conservative and Pauline understandings of human sexuality in condemning divorce, abortion, trial marriage, pornography, prostitution, birth control, unbridled hedonism, and lust, the Pope employed a great deal of feminist rhetoric about sexual objectification. Sounding like lesbian feminist, feminist polemicist Julia Penelope, His Holiness explained that, quote, considering anyone in a lustful way makes that person a sexual object rather than a human being worthy of dignity, end quote. This is where the hand, that there's where the hands ma- handmaid's tale came from, by the way, is the belief that the social conservatives, the religious, would team up with the sex negative feminists to create this super anti uh, sexual society. And it grafts into queer theory pretty neatly, as we see in 2020 through 2022. The right wing opposes pornography and has already adopted elements of feminist anti-porn rhetoric. The anti-SNM discourse developed in the women's movement could easily become a vehicle for a moral witch hunt. It provides a ready-made defenseless target population. It provides a rationale for the recriminalization of sexual materials which have escaped the reach of current obscenity laws. It would be especially easy to pass laws against SNM erotica resembling the child pornography laws. The ostensible purpose of such laws would be to reduce violence by banning so-called violent porn. We come back to the video game argument. A focused campaign against the leather menace might also result in the passage of laws to criminalize SNM behavior that is not currently illegal. The ultimate result of such a moral panic would be the legalized violation of a community of harmless perverts. It is dubious that such a sexual witch hunt would make any appreciable contribution toward reducing violence against women. Again, in this, I agree with Gail Rubin. I think it's extremely unlikely that taking the rampant uh, sex-negative feminist view that targets, as what does she call them, a community of harmless perverts, which they mostly are if they're consenting adults. We're not talking about kids here, or maybe Gail is, but if we definitely take that off the table that, okay, if you want to, if in my view, if you want to go do that stuff, like rock on, you know, good for you, keep it out of the street, keep it away from kids, do your thing, fly your freak flag the way you want to fly it as consenting adults in private. And the sex negative feminist arguments that say that, you know, just allowing this to be is going to lead down to more rapes, etc. That's all based off of like the completely bogus, thought of the sex negative feminists and people like Susan Brown Miller, who said that it's always about power. Rape is always about power. It's never about sex, etc. I do agree that by and large, if they can keep their fetish stuff where it belongs in private between consenting adults, the fetish community is not particularly a dangerous thing. Keeping it away from children is, I think, imperative. I don't think that Gail Rubin would necessarily agree. In fact, I don't think she would agree. So don't misquote me as saying that I agree with Gail Rubin about this. I think that consenting adults are consenting adults. So now we're going to talk about diseases, Anthony Fauci diseases. An AIDS panic is even more probable. When fears of incurable disease mingled with sexual terror, the resulting brew is extremely volatile. A century ago, attempts to control syphilis led to the passage of the Contagious Diseases Act 
acts, plural, in England. The acts were based on erroneous medical theories and did nothing to halt the spread of the disease. But they did make life miserable for the hundreds of women who were incarcerated, subjected to forcible vaginal examination, and stigmatized for life as prostitutes. Well, damn if they, she's not kind of right about what happened with AIDS there and old Anthony Fauci. Is, you know, whatever happens with whatever happens, AIDS will have far-reaching consequences on sex in general and on homosexuality in particular. Now, what Fauci did with AIDS was really bad. We get to have round two and maybe three now. The disease will have a significant impact on the choices gay people make. Fewer will migrate to the gay meccas out of fear of the disease. Those who already reside in the ghettos will avoid situations they fear will expose them. The gay economy and the political apparatus it supports may prove to be evanescent. Fear of AIDS has already affected sexual ideology. Just when homosexuals have had some success in throwing off the taint of mental disease, gay people find themselves metaphorically welded to an image of lethal physical deterioration. Thanks, Anthony Fauci. The syndrome, its peculiar qualities, and its transmissibility are being used to reinforce old fears that sexual activity, homosexuality, and promiscuity lead, led to death and dis, to disease and death. Well, Gail, sometimes they do, but often they don't. Thanks, Anthony Fauci. AIDS is both a personal tragedy for those who contract the syndrome and a calamity for the gay community. Homophobes have gleefully hastened to turn this tragedy against its victims. One columnist has suggested that AIDS has always existed, that the biblical prohibitions on sodomy were designed to protect people from AIDS, and that AIDS is therefore an appropriate punishment for violating the Levitical codes. One person said that. Actually, probably a lot of people said that. Using fear of infection as a rationale, local right-wingers attempted to ban the gay rodeo from Reno, Nevada. I think I laugh at, laughed at that. The gay rodeo got banned. Okay. The recent issue of the Moral Majority Report featured a picture of a, quote, typical white family of four wearing surgical masks. The headline reads, quote, AIDS, homosexual diseases threaten American families. Oh, from this perspective, that's an interesting little vignette. We'll just leave that be. Phyllis Schlafly has recently issued a pamphlet arguing that passage of the Equal Rights Amendment would make it impossible to, quote, legally protect ourselves against AIDS and other diseases carried by homosexuals, end quote. Current right-wing literature calls for shutting down the gay baths, for a legal ban on homosexual in employment and food handling occupations, and for state-mandated prohibitions on blood donations by gay people. Such policies would make the government uh, would require the government to identify all homosexuals and impose easily recognizable legal and social markers on them. Imagine if we took out gay and replaced gay and what happened to, to them in that situation, which I kind of agree with a lot of what Gail's saying here. What if we took out gay and made it unvaccinated? Huh. Second verse is the same as the first. It is bad enough that the gay community must deal with the medical misfortune of having been the population in which a deadly disease first became widespread and visible. It is worse to have to deal with the social consequences as well. Even before the AIDS scare, Greece passed a law that enables police to arrest suspected homosexuals and force them to submit to an examination for venereal disease. It is likely that until AIDS and its methods of transmission are understood, there will be all sorts of proposals to control it by punishing the gay community and by attacking its institutions. 
When the cause of Legionnaire's disease was unknown, there were no calls to quarantine members of the American Legion or to shut down their meeting halls. The Contagious Diseases Acts in England did little to control syphilis, but they caused a great deal of suffering for the women who came under their purview. Now do covid the history of panic that has accompanied new epidemics and of the casualties incurred by their scapegoats should make everyone pause and consider with extreme skepticism any attempts to justify anti-gay policy initiatives on the basis of AIDS. I don't disagree with that part, so we'll carry on to the limits of feminism. And Gail starts off this section by citing J. Edgar Hoover. We know, says Hoover, we know that an overwhelmingly large number of cases in a large overwhelmingly large number of cases sex crime is associated with pornography we know that sex criminals read it are clearly influenced by it i believe that if we can eliminate the distribution of such items among impressionable children we shall greatly reduce our frightening sex crime rate oh well, jr hoover is probably not correct about that maybe in the absence of a more articulated radical theory of sex, most progressives have turned to feminism for guidance, tells us Gail Rubin. But the relationship between feminism and sex is complex, because sexuality is a nexus of relationships between genders. Much of the oppression of women is borne by, mediated through, and constituted within sexuality. Feminism has always been vitally interested in sex, but there have been two strains of feminist thought on the subject. One tendency has criticized the restrictions on women's sexual behavior and denounced the high costs imposed on women for being sexually active. This tradition of feminist sexual thought has called for a sexual liberation that would work for women as well as for men. The second tendency has considered sexual liberalization to be inherently a mere extension of male, pr male privilege. The tradition resonates with conservative anti-sexual discourse. So this was a sex-positive, now we're talking about sex-negative, radical feminism. With the advent of the anti-pornography movement, it has achi it achieved temporary hegemony over that's hegemony, temporary hegemony over feminist analysis. So the sex negatives basically took over feminist analysis. I told you. There's a huge war in feminism in the 70s and 80s, particularly the 80s, between the sex negative and the sex positive uh, feminists, radical feminists. The huge war with each other over how we're going to view sex. As we heard, Gail Rubin said that sex is tied into uh, what it means to relate between men and women, and therefore all the issues that femin feminism touches upon as issues of sex, gender, and sexuality are tied up into this a uh, question about sexuality and its relationship to these issues. My, of course, solution would have been we should have had neither form of radical feminism because they both sucked. But queer theory grew out of the sex positives figuring out a way to tar the sex negatives as socially conservative or similar to social conservatives and to create a new radical politics uh, that actually is left behind reality virtually completely. The anti-pornography movement and its texts have been the most extensive expression of this discourse. So we're back to this porn stuff. The queer theorists really like porn. They really want lots of porn. They, in fact, want porn for children, which at some point you have to draw some lines. In addition, proponents of this viewpoint have condemned virtually every variant of sexual expression as anti-feminist. 
Within this framework, monogamous lesbianism that occurs within long-term intimate relationships and which does not involve playing with polarized roles has replaced married procreative heterosexuality at the top of the value hierarchy. In other words, sex-negative feminists most prize straight-up vanilla lesbian sex. That's woman-on-woman. Nobody's butch. Nobody's playing the boy. Nobody's a top or bottom or whatever all the language happens to be. So in other words, she's saying the sex-negative feminists are actually saying that the, the, the most valuable good kind of sex is straight-up normal lesbian sex of a certain kind in certain relationship contexts. Heterosexuality, she says, has been demoted to somewhere near in the, in the middle. Apart from this change, everything else looks more or less familiar. So she's calling them out as essentially being conservatives to upholding the status quo of the the sexual hierarchy, which is going to be fatal to the sex-negative feminist movement as queer theory colonizes and destroys it. The lower depths are occupied by the usual groups and behaviors, prostitution, transsexuality, sadomasochism, and cross-generational activities. Queer theorists just can't leave that stuff alone. Most gay male conduct, all casual sex, promiscuity, and lesbian behavior that does involve roles or kink or non-monogamy are also censured. Even sexual fantasy during masturbation is denounced as a phallocentric holdover. In other words, if women are fantasizing while they play with themselves, they are basically favoring the way that men censor things in the world because I guess men play with their willies a lot or something. This discourse on sexuality is less a sexology than a demonology. It presents most sexual behavior in the worst possible light. Its descriptions of erotic conduct always use the worst available example as if it were representative. (laughs) Indeed. It presents the most disgusting pornography, the most exploited forms of prostitution, and the least palatable or most shocking manifestations of sexual variation. This rhetorical tactic consistently misrepresents human sexuality in all its forms. The picture of human sexuality that emerges from this literature is unremittingly ugly. She's not wrong about how the sex-negative feminists look at all these things. In fact, it's pretty hideous how they did. Um... The queer theory overreaction was not the correct way to go, but there's a point being made here about the sex-negative feminists, whom we can all agree to hate. In addition, this anti-porn rhetoric is a massive exercise in scapegoating. By the way, sex-negative feminism is kind of re-emerging right now a little bit, and in fact, it's sort of wedding a little bit to social conservatism. I see kind of social conservative people who are kind of formerly left-leaning, making many of the same arguments and many of the same uh thoughts come out and being put forth. The sort of weird trad movement is kind of tied into it. Um, But that's because the queer theory, which isn't even sex positive, it's like sex, yes, please, please, please. Oh my God, more, more, more. Oh my God, don't put a limit. Do it to kids. Uh, Catastrophe has created a, a backlash that's kind of reinvigorating some of what made more sense within the um, sex negative framework, which went vastly too far the other way. Again, there, the, the correct thing to do here is to reject the logic of both of these approaches and look at these things more realistically. 
In addition, this anti-porn rhetoric is a massive exercise in scapegoating. It criticizes non-routine acts of love rather than routine acts of oppression, exploitation, or violence. Of course, we have to talk about it like a feminist would. This demon sexology directs legitimate anger at women's lack of personal safety against innocent individuals, practices, and communities. Anti-porn propaganda often implies that sexism originates within the commercial sex industry and subsequently infects the rest of society. Well, that's a true statement about a thing that is correctly identified as false. This is sociologically nonsensical. Correct. Same with video games. The sex industry is hardly a feminist utopia. It reflects the sexism that exists in the society as a whole. We need to analyze and oppose the manifestations of gender inequality specific to the sex industry, but this is not the same as attempting to wipe out commercial sex. Similarly, erotic minorities, such as sadomasochists and transsexuals, we've got to get back to them, are as likely to exhibit sexist attitudes or behavior as any other politically random social grouping. Mm. There might be more in some cases, but let's just... Mm. But to claim that they are inherently anti-feminist is sheer fantasy. A good deal of current feminist literature attributes uh, the oppression of women to graphic representations of sex, prostitution, sex education, sadomasochism, male homosexuality, and transsexualism. Whatever happened to the family, religion, education, child-rearing practices, the media, the state, patriarchy, job discrimination, and unequal pay? Finally, this so-called feminist discourse recreates a very conservative sexual morality. Like I said, the sex-positive versus sex-negative radical feminist fight is the terrain in which, or the ground in which, the seed of queer theory grew. Um, for over a century, battles have been waged over just how much shame, distress, and punishment should be incurred by sexual activity. The conservative tradition has promoted opposition to pornography, prostitution, homosexuality, all erotic variation, sex education, sex research, abortion, and contraception. The opposing pro-sex tradition has included individuals like Havelock Ellis, Magnus Hirschfeld, Alfred Kinsey, and Victoria Woodhull, as well as the sex education movement, organizations of militant prostitutes and homosexuals, the reproductive rights movement, and organizations such as the Sexual Reform League of the 1960s. So uh, reproductive rights movements would be like, as an organization, would be like Planned Parenthood. This motley collection of sex reformers, sex educators, and sexual militants has mixed records on both sexual and feminist issues. But surely they are closer to the spirit of modern feminism than are the moral crusaders, the social purity movement, and the anti-vice organizations. I don't actually disagree with Gail on that. It is closer to the modern feminist movement, whatever that implies. Nevertheless, the current feminist sexual demonology generally elevates the anti-vice crusaders to positions of ancestral honor while condemning the more liberatory tradition as anti-feminist. In an essay that exemplifies some of these trends, Sheila Jeffries blames Havelock Ellis, Edward Carpenter, Alexandra Kalantai, quote, believers in the joy of sex of every possible political persuasion, and the 1929 Congress of the World League for Sex Reform for making a, quote, great contribution to the defeat of militant feminism, end quote. Sorry we are reading through this. This is feminist squabbles from the 80s. It's really kind of boring, to be honest with you. The anti-pornography movement and its avatars have claimed to speak for all feminism. 
Fortunately, they do not. Sexual liberation has been and continues to be a feminist goal. What this should do, what this, I know this is boring and I'm sorry, what this should do is convince you that feminism sucks and we shouldn't listen to feminism at all because feminism sucks. And all they do is fight with each other about who has the upper hand and what feminism is going to look like, and it sucks. The women's movement may have produced some of the most retrogressive sexual thinking this side of the Vatican, but it has also produced an exciting, innovative, and articulate defense of sexual pleasure and erotic justice. This, quote, pro-sex feminism has been spearheaded by lesbians whose sexuality does not conform to the movement to movement standards of purity. So notice that both sides have been led by lesbians, the ones who do conform to whatever, they're monogamous, they're low-key, and the ones who don't conform because they're queer. Mm-hmm. Meaning politically queer. The pro-sex feminism has been spearheaded by lesbians whose sexuality does not conform to movement standards of purity, primarily lesbian sadomasochists and butch femme dykes, by unapologetic heterosexuals and by women who adhere to classic radical feminism rather than to revisionist celebrations of femininity, which have become so common. Although the anti-porn forces have attempted to weed anyone who disagrees with them out of the movement, the fact remains that feminist thought about sex is profoundly polarized. Wherever there is polarization, there is an unhappy tendency to think the truth lies somewhere in between. Ellen Willis has commented sarcastically that, quote, the feminist bias is that women are equal to men and that the male chauvinist bias is that women are inferior. The unbiased view is that the truth, is so is that the truth lies somewhere in between, end quote. The most recent development in the feminist sex wars is the emergence of a, quote, middle that seeks to evade the dangers of anti-porn fascism on the one hand and a supposed, quote, anything-goes libertarianism on the other. Although it is hard to criticize a position that is not yet fully formed, I want to draw attention to some incipient problems, because she wants the anything-goes approach. And the correct thing isn't, she's right, the correct place when you have two wrong views is not somewhere in the middle. The correct is to reject the bad logic entirely, in this case, feminism. The emergent middle, she says, is based on a false characterization of the poles of the debate, construing both sides as equally extremist. Well, they kind of are. According to B. Ruby Rich, quote, the desire for a language of sexuality has led feminists into locations, pornography and sadomasochism, too narrow or overdetermined for a fruitful discussion. Debate has collapsed into a rumble, end quote. True, the fights between women against pornography and lesbian sadomasochists have resembled gang warfare. Mm-hmm. But the responsibility for this lies primarily with the anti-porn movement and its refusal to engage in principled discussion. Might kind of be true, but I don't know. It's probably screwed up on both sides. S&M lesbians have been forced into a struggle to maintain their membership in the movement and defend themselves and to defend themselves against slander. Well, they should have left the movement because it's stupid. No major spokeswoman for lesbian S&M has argued for any kind of S&M supremacy or advocated that everyone should be a sadomasochist. In addition to self-defense, S&M lesbians have called for appreciation for erotic diversity and more open discussion of sexuality, trying to find a middle course between women against pornography and uh, Samoa, who we've just seen cited, is a bit like saying that the truth about homosexuality lies somewhere between the positions of the moral majority and those of the gay movement. In political life, it is all too easy to marginalize radicals and attempt to buy acceptance for a moderate position by portraying others as extremists. Liberals have done this for years to communists. Weird thing to bring up. 
Sexual radicals have opened up the sex debates. It's shameful to deny their contribution, misrepresent their positions, and further their stigmatization. Frankly, I kind of agree. I actually do think that we've been having ins- part of a problem is that we've had insufficiently clear, accurate, and mature discussion about sex sexuality for a very long time. And I think that the sex negative feminists really made that worse. And I'm inclined to agree with Gail Rubin's point about them. Again, I don't really agree with her or queer theory or its underlying assumptions and all of these things. But man, I don't like the sex negative feminists. So I end up finding myself agreeing with a lot of her critiques in this stupid feminist internecine war that was going on in the 80s, which the queer theorists decisively won. In contrast to cultural feminists, she tells us, who simply want to purge sexual dissidents, the sexual moderates are willing to defend the rights of erotic nonconformists to political participation. Yet this defense of political rights is linked to an implicit system of ideological condescension. The argument has two major parts. This is actually kind of interesting. The first is an accusation that sexual dissidents have not paid close enough attention to the meaning, sources, or historical construction of their sexuality. That part's not interesting. This emphasis on meaning appears to function in much the same way that the question of ideology has functioned in the discussions of homosexuality. That's not interesting. That is, homosexuality, sadomasochism, prostitution, or boy love, that just has to keep coming up, doesn't it, are taken to be mysterious and problematic in some way that more respectable sexualities are not. Boy love and prostitution. Okay. The search for cause is a search for something that could change so that these, quote, problematic eroticisms would simply not occur. Sexual militants have replied to such exercises that although the question of ideology or cause is of intellectual interest, it is not high on the political agenda, and that moreover, the privileging of such questions is itself a regressive political choice. The second part of the, quote, moderate position focuses on questions of consent. This is where we get more interesting. Sexual radicals of all varieties have demanded the legal and social legitimation of consenting sexual behavior. Notice she didn't use the word adult here, by the way. Feminists have criticized them for ostensibly fitnessing, or sorry, finessing questions about the limits of consent and structural con- constraints on consent. Although there are deep problems with the political, you know, basically some of the sex negative feminists have even argued so that, that women can never consent to sex because patriarchy creates a power dynamic such that the women are always in a position where they're underpowered and therefore coerced and therefore cannot consent, which is absurd. This is one of the reasons that I hate the sex negative feminists more than I hate the sex positive feminists. Although there are deep problems with the political discourse of consent, and although there are certainly structural constraints on sexual choice, this criticism has been consistently misapplied in the sex debates. It does not take into account the very specific semantic content that consent has in sex law and sex practice. Man, boy, love. Let's not forget that, though. As I mentioned earlier, a great deal of sex law does not distinguish between consensual and coercive behavior. Only rape law contains such a distinction. Rape law is based on the assumption, correct in my view, that heterosexual activity may be freely chosen or forcibly coerced. One has the legal right to engage in heterosexual behavior as long as it does not fall under the purview of other statutes and as long as it is agreeable to both parties. I also think that this is okay. This is, in fact, what I think the point should be. Consenting adults can do what they want in private. Don't add kids. Don't do it in public. This is not the case for most other sexual acts. Sodomy laws, as I mentioned above, are based on the assumption that the forbidden acts are an, quote, abominable abominable and detestable crime against nature. 
taking Gail Rubin's side in this. If people want to be gay and with each other, good for them. I don't care. Keep it to yourselves between consenting adults. I don't care. You don't have to keep it to yourself. You can tell me you did it. I don't, I don't mind. People have sex. It's great. Whatever. Criminality is intrinsic to the acts themselves. Gail has a point here. No matter what the desires of the participants, quote, unlike rape, sodomy, or an unnatural or perverted sexual act may be committed between two persons, both of whom consent, and regardless of which the uh, is the aggressor, both may be prosecuted, end quote. Before the consenting adults statute was passed in California in 1976, lesbian lovers could have been prosecuted for committing oral copulation. If both participants were capable of consent, both were equally guilty. That should not be a crime. I completely agree. Adult incest statutes operate in similar fashion. Well, now we had to get weird, didn't we? Contrary to popular mythology, the incest statutes have little to do with protecting children from rape by close relatives. The incest statutes themselves prohibit marriage or sexual intercourse between adults who are closely related. We're going to defend incest now for queer theory. Prosecutions are rare, but two were reported recently. In 1979, a 19-year-old Marine and his 42-year-old mother, from whom he had been separated at birth, sorry, met his 42-year-old mother, from whom he had been separated at birth. The two fell in love and got married. They were charged and found guilty of incest, which under Virginia law carries a maximum sen- maximum 10-year sentence. During the trial, the Marine testified, quote, I love her very much. I feel that two people who love each other should be able to live together, end quote. It's your mom, dude. It's your mom. In another case, a brother and sister who had been raised separately met and decided to get married. They were arrested and pleaded guilty to felony incest and returned for probation. A condition of probation was that they not live together as husband and wife. Had they not accepted, they would have faced 20 years in prison. Look, if they knew, there's a problem. If they didn't know, Slap them on the wrist, let them know, and then nobody wants to bone their sister. That's normal, and then you move on. Okay. I don't think these things are all that complicated, but apparently they're complicated. In a famous S&M case, a man was convicted of aggravated assault for whipping it, for a whipping administered in an S&M scene. Okie dokie, we're going to get to this. There was no complaining victim. Now, I agree. If people want to consent to get their ass whipped by each other for sex, like, and they're doing it as consenting adults between one another in private, not in front of children and whatever... More power to him. There's no complaining victim. The session had been filmed, and he was prosecuted on the basis of the film. The man appealed his conviction by arguing that he had been involved in a consensual sexual encounter and had assaulted no one. In rejecting his appeal, the court ruled that one may not consent to an assault or battery, quote, except in a situation involving ordinary physical contact or blows incident to sports such as football, boxing, or wrestling, end quote. I think Gail has a point here. But what she's going to do at that point is going to be messed up. The court went on to note that the, quote, that the, quote, consent of a person without legal capacity to give consent, such as a child or insane person, is ineffective, end quote, and that, quote, it is a matter of common knowledge that a normal person in full possession of his mental faculties does not freely consent to the use upon himself of force likely to produce great bodily injury, end quote. Great bodily injury from spanking or something. I don't know what the actual context was. Maybe the judge is right in this case. Maybe it was out of control. Maybe it was too much. Maybe it wasn't. If it wasn't, there should be no problem here. I agree with Gail. What's going to happen from this, though, is the queer theory thing of breaking down all barriers. We shouldn't even have sex laws. We shouldn't blah, blah, blah. 
Therefore, anyone who would consent to a whipping would be presumed non compos mentis and legally incapable of consenting. Yeah, that's ridiculous. The state shouldn't be able to decide that based on that. I agree with Gail. S&M sex generally involves a much lower level of force than the average football game. Indeed, I would think, and results in far fewer injuries than most sports. But the court ruled that football players are sane, whereas masochists are not. Sodomy laws, adult incest laws, and legal interpretations such as the one above clearly interfere with consensual behavior and impose criminal penalties on it. Gail's correct there. Within the law, consent is a privilege enjoyed only by those who engage in the highest status sexual behavior. Now it's getting weird. Those who enjoy low-status sexual behavior do not have the legal right to engage in it. In addition, economic sanctions, family pressures, erotic stigma, social discrimination, negative ideology, and the paucity of information about erotic behavior all serve to make it difficult for people to make unconventional sexual choices. There certainly are structural constraints that impede free sexual choice, but they, are hard, but they hardly operate to coerce anyone into being a pervert. On the contrary, they operate to coerce everyone toward normality. So we get the queer theory, pervert versus normal thing, thrown in as the correct frame of analysis on what would have otherwise been fairly sensible analysis, that the government really has no business poking its nose in anybody's bedroom when the people involved are consenting adults. The quote brainwash theory, she says, explains erotic diversity by assuming that some sexual acts are so disgusting that no one would willingly perform them. Therefore, the reasoning goes, anyone who does who does so must have been forced or fooled. Even constructivist sexual theory has been pressed into the service of explaining why otherwise rational individuals might engage in variant sexual behavior. I'm sure there's some gross stuff in her mind right now. Other position uh, sorry, another position that is not fully yet not yet fully formed uses the ideas of Foucault and Weeks to imply that the quote perversions are an especially unsavory or problematic aspect of the construction of modern sexuality. This is yet another version of the notion that sexual dissidents are victims of subtle machinations of the social system. So we're going to go full queer theory on the back of Foucault. This uh, Weeks and Foucault would not accept such an interpretation since they consider all sexuality to be constructed, the conventional no less than the deviant. And so she's defending Foucault and Weeks from this attack on Foucault and Weeks in particular. So she wants to go into the fully constructed queer theory, postmodern Marxist land. Psychology, she tells us, is the last resort of those who refuse to acknowledge that sexual dissidents are as conscious and free as any other group of sexual actors. If deviants, Again, she doesn't keep saying between consenting adults, but she should because it would strengthen her argument all the way. If deviants are not responding to the manipulations of the social system, then perhaps the source of their incomprehensible choices can be found in a bad childhood, unsuccessful socialization, or inadequate identity formation. In her essay on erotic domination, Jessica Benjamin draws upon psychoanalysis and philosophy to explain why what she calls, quote, sadomasochism is alienated, distorted, unsatisfactory, numb, purposeless, in an attempt to, quote, relive an original effort at differentiation that failed, end quote. Freaking academics. This essay substitutes a psycho-philosophical inferiority for the more usual means of devaluing dissident eroticism. One reviewer has already construed Benjamin's argument as showing that sadomasochism is merely an, quote, obsessive replay of the infant power struggle, end quote. 
the position which defends the political rights of perverts, but which seeks to understand their, quote, alienated sexuality, is certainly preferable to the women against pornography style bloodbaths. But for the most part, sexual moderates have not confronted their discomfort with erotic choices that differ from their own. Erotic chauvinism cannot be redeemed by tarting it up in Marxist drag, sophisticated constructivist theory, or retro psychobabble. I find myself agreeing with Gail on that point. I'll just as a matter of some humor, I keep saying women against pornography throughout, but actually she abbreviated it as WAP, and that's just cracking me up. I'm just every time I see WAP, I just crack up a little bit. Speaking of sex and sexuality. Back to Gail. Whichever feminist position on sexuality, right, left, or center, eventually attains dominance, the existence of such a rich discussion is evidence that the feminist movement will always be a source of interesting thought about sex. Kind of disagree. Nevertheless, I want to challenge this assumption that feminism is or should be the privileged site of a theory of sexuality. I agree, Gail, but you're going to say it should be queer theory which doesn't exist yet in 1984, but that's what you're going to suggest. Feminism is the theory of gender oppression. To assume automatically that this makes it the theory of sexual oppression is to fail to distinguish between gender on the one hand and erotic desire on the other. In the English language, because we've got to do this, of course, the word, quote, sex has two very different meanings. It means gender and gender identity, as in the female sex or the male sex. But sex also refers to sexual activity, lust, intercourse, and arousal, as in to have sex. This semantic merging reflects a cultural assumption that sexuality is reducible to sexual intercourse and that it is a function of the relations between women and men. It is. The cultural fusion of gender with sexuality has given rise to the idea that a theory of sexuality may be derived directly out of a theory of gender. So I, after I read this the other day, thought about it for a long time. This part stuck in my head for some reason, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. Why do we call having sex? Why do we use the word sex for that? And why do we use the word sex for are you a male or a female? And it's very obvious. Having sex is why. Having sexual intercourse because we're a sexually reproducing species that are sexually dimorphic into two sexes. Why do we call them sexes? Because they are the components of the sexual intercourse. That's why. They are the two component pieces of sexual intercourse that produces progeny. It's not actually complicated. So it actually is that, though. In an earlier essay, The Traffic in, in Women, I use the concepts of sex gender of sex slash gender system defined as a quote set of arrangements by which a society transforms biological sexuality into products of human activity. That was a paper from 1975, apparently. I went on to argue that quote sex as we know it, gender identity, sexual desire, and fantasy, concepts of childhood, is itself a social product. Alright. Concepts of childhood. Hmm. Always keep doing it, Gail. In that essay, I did not distinguish between lust and gender, treating both as modalities of the same underlying social process. The traffic in women was inspired by the literature on kin-based systems of social organization. It appeared to me at the time that gender and desire were systematically intertwined in such social formations. This may or may not be an accurate assessment of the relationship between sex and gender in, tri in tribal organizations, but it is surely not an adequate formation of, for sexuality in Western industrial societies. 
As Foucault has pointed out, a system of sexuality has emerged out of earlier kinship forms and has acquired significant autonomy. Quoting Foucault, she says, or he says, particularly from the 18th century onward, Western societies created and developed a new apparatus which was superimposed upon the previous one, and which without completely supplanting the latter, helped to reduce its importance. I am speaking of the deployment of sexuality. For the first, kinship. What is pertinent is the link between partners and definite statutes. The second, sexuality, is concerned with the sensations of the body, the quality of pleasures, and the nature of impressions. End quote. The development of this sexual system has taken place in the context of gender relations. Part of the modern ideology of sex is that lust is the province of men, purity that of women. Well, is this just socially constructed? No, it's not. The mating program in human beings does involve two sexes. Turns out they are actually different. Turns out that men have what is sometimes called an approach mechanism, and women have what is sometimes called a filtering mechanism. Men and women judge one another, judge each other, based on the qualities of their respective mechanisms. Women tend to find men attractive when they have, or more attractive, when they have a high-functioning approach mechanism. In other words, they're bold enough to make the approach, to make the move, but not one that's so overdeveloped that they are dangerous or violent. And there's a, the mating dance between men and women is largely a dance of gauging. Is this guy the kind of guy who's going to be forward enough to make the approach, but not to be a dangerous psychopath, which the woman has a huge interest in knowing if she's possibly going to mate with him. On the other hand, the woman has a filtering mechanism. Is she so filtering or so tight with her filter that she's basically frigid, as you might say, that she won't accept anything and therefore your advances are a waste and it's going to be a frustrating situation? Or is she, frankly, a whore that'll just let anything between her legs? And the man has a vested interest in understanding both of those things. And so the mating dance is this kind of probing. What will she accept? What will she deny? What will he do? What won't he do? Where will he draw the line? How does he flirt? How does he joke? How does she defer or demur? How does she act? The whole mating dance between people comes down to this fact, which can be predicted across the entire uh, slate of animal species based on the size of the gametes. It's totally a thing. It is totally a real thing. Sex, uh, the modern part of the modern ideology of sex is that lust is the province of men, purity that of women. So this, those are just kind of, they are a little bit of a mythologized as lust and purity, but uh, those are actually um, based in biological reality about men and women. Of course, there's every man, or every, I shouldn't say every man and woman. Men and women are actually populations that are statistically variable within one another, not just against one another. And so there are men who are less that way and more that way. There are women who are less that way and more that way. And it varies and it doesn't make you more or less of a woman. But these things are still relevant and still have underlying biological bases. And those underlying biological bases through the sexual selection process have a lot to do with why men and women are the way they are in this regard specifically. So that's actually reflective of some reality. It's not just an ideology. It's an ideology based on things. I will say there are ideological or mythological components to it, but that's based on pieces of reality. And the social constructivist 
never gets this. They don't believe there's an underlying ideology or reality. They believe that the claim to an underlying reality, and this is so important to understand with Marxists, the claim to an underlying reality is just an attempt by the people who uh, have the power to say that to reinforce the social policies, the social relations that benefit them. There is no underlying reality. There's a claim about what, under, what the underlying reality is. It's being made by, with the peop, by the people who have the power to make that claim. And they make that claim not because it really reflects reality, but because it ensures their continued dominance and power. That is the Marxist idea. That's why reality itself in Marxism is thought to constrain the limits of subjective consciousness and thus alienate and limit people. And that's why liberation in, in the communist program means includes, I should say, limita- uh, liberation from reality. They don't believe that reality is actually what's there. They believe everything starts in the realm of imagination and one's conscious subjectivity and that social relations create uh, ideologies and parameters that limit that range. So when you say, no, it's just a reality, it's just a biological reality of men and women that w- men tend toward will say that she says lust, women tend toward purity, that this reflects an underlying mating strategy between human animals that is approach mechanism versus filtering mechanism to work out who makes good partners based on the different uh, underlying roles of, you know, a nine-month pregnancy, giving birth to a mostly, actually completely helpless infant, you know, depending on certain circumstances, at least 12 to 13 years, but arguably 18 to 25 years of uh, complete to partial dependency on the parents. There's a lot that goes in to being a, uh, to the human mating dance and what, what leads to it. It's not arbitrary. It's not just a creation of people who want to enforce certain things. And this is what the Marxist always misses. This is also, by the way, why you don't need biologists to solve this. My friend Colin Wright does a great job. I highly support Colin and all of his work. Colin is a biologist, but nobody needs a biologist to tell them that men and women are different. We just don't need that. We actually don't. We do need to understand why queer theory hijacks this and screws it up. And for the queer theorist, biology is just a system that people in power have created to authenticate people like Colin to be able to make pronouncements about sex that are actually just a self-serving ideology and to give it the veneer of science and authority that maintains the problem. So when you appeal to biology, all you're doing for a Marxist is appealing to exactly the thing that they think is the underlying root of the problem, you're reinforcing the ideology, because there is no underlying reality. There are just people who have claimed to be able to have the right and the skill to talk about reality. And so you will never convince people who have bought into this even partially by appealing to reality. That's the nature of the social constructivist, Marxist, subjective, objective, dialectical, whatever you want to call it, worldview. Carrying on with Gale, though, it is no accident that pornography and perversions have been considered part of the male domain. Let me actually stop. What is a solution if we don't need a biologist? And Colin's great, so I listen to Colin. Go check him out at Swipe Right, or his, most of his stuff, as far as I know. Um, and his, his, his work is excellent. I'm not saying that. What do we need? We need people who can tell you what the hell queer theory is and why it's wrong. We need to actually break queer theory, and then those explanations matter. 
you don't need somebody to debunk the 1619 project in order to beat the 1619 project. You need somebody who debunks the 1619 project so that when the 1619 project finally collapses because people realize that it's a manipulation, the actual explanation is there and they have a landing pad. The biologist provides the landing pad after you break the queer hegemony. So we have to break the queer hegemony too. So do listen to Colin and uh, also dig into queer theory and understand that it's a Marxist manipulation of sex and sexuality. So anyway, it is no accident, she tells us, that pornography and perversions have been considered part of the male domain. In the sex industry, women have been excluded from most production and consumption and allowed to participate primarily as workers prostitutes. In order to uh, participate in the, quote, perversions, women have had to overcome serious limitations on their social mobility, their economic resources, and their sexual freedoms. Gender affects the operation of the sexual system, and the sexual system has had gender-specific manifestations. But although sex and gender are related, they are not the same thing, and they form the basis of two distinct arenas of social practice. So this is, again, she's going to take shots at feminism to establish what will become queer theory. That's what's happening here. The limits of feminism is the name of the section. I know I went off about biologists, but Gail's not talking about biologists. She's talking about feminists. In contrast to my perspective in the traffic in women, I am now arguing that it is essential to separate gender and sexuality analytically and to reflect more accurately their separate social existence. This is why you're going to have a sex, a gender, a sexuality, and now a romantic orientation under the queer theory auspices. And you might have any of 400 of any of those, except maybe sex. This goes against the grain of much contemporary feminist thought, so I told you she's shooting at the feminists, which treats sexuality as a, devi- as a derivation of gender. For instance, lesbian feminist ideology has mostly analyzed the oppression of lesbians in terms of the oppression of women. However, lesbians are also oppressed as queers and as perverts by the operation of sexual, not gender, stratification. She's actually not wrong on that point. Although it pains many lesbians to think about it, the fact is that lesbians have shared many of the sociological features and suffered from many of the same social penalties as have gay men, sadomasochists, transvestites, and prostitutes. She always has that whole laundry list of stuff that people probably wouldn't want stuck together. Catherine McKinnon, okay, so she's one of the most famous sex-negative feminists. She was an attorney, if I'm not mistaken, in the 80s. I don't know what she's doing now, or if she's even still alive. But she was big time in the idea of the anti-porn, women against porn kind of feminist anti and sex-negative movement. Catherine McKinnon has made the most explicit theoretical attempt to subsume sexuality under feminist thought. According to McKinnon, quote, sexuality is to feminism what work is to Marxism. All right, Mock Fry. Uh, as, as, uh, what is it? Sex. Uh, I don't know how to say sex in German. It's probably just sex. Macht frei. Sex makes free. Sexuality is to feminism what work is to Marxism. The molding, direction, and expression of sexuality organizes society into two sexes, women and men. Huh. Does it? The molding, direction, and expression of sexuality organizes society into two sexes. No. No, Catherine. The sexes come first. This analytic strategy, in turn, rests upon a decision to, quote, use sex and gender relatively interchangeably. It is this definitional fusion that I want to challenge. There is an an instructive analogy in the history of the differentiation of contemporary feminist thought from Marxism. 
Marxism is probably the most supple and powerful conceptual system extant for analyzing social inequality, but attempts to make Marxism the sole explanatory system for all social inequalities have been dismal exercises. Marxism is most successful in the, in the areas of social life for which it was originally developed, class relations under capitalism. This is why I'm saying that into identity Marxism or whatever is totally a new thing, in a sense. It is a, it is a total... It isn't okay. How do I phrase this? Marxist. There, there, you could do f- feminism through Marxism, where you say that patriarchy is a uh, piece of capitalism. You occasionally hear Kendi say this with race, that um, racism is a piece of capitalism, and this is a thing that the Marxists who happen to be feminists as well, or took a feminist tack, or Marxists who took a racial tack, actually did. But you can do it the other way around, too. You can take the engine of a Marxist analysis and stick it into a different social or cultural domain, and that's what identity Marxism does. It's not the same thing. And what queer theory ends up doing is creating that Marxist analysis within sex, gender, and sexuality and some of the other things by reframing, and we can hear even the seeds here, reframing normalcy itself, acceptability itself as a bourgeois form of private property that itself has to be abolished. So you're actually not doing a Marxist analysis through a feminist lens. Rather, you are putting the Marxist engine in the feminist car. It's a slightly different thing. And that's what I say identity Marxism is. So it's new and old at the same time. It's really just Marxism, but it's Marxism in a completely different domain. When I call critical race theory race Marxism, that's actually what I mean. You're not looking at... There's a tendency among academics, I should say, to say that Marxism is this narrow economic thing that has to do with material conditions and to miss the fact some Marxists actually call the woke stuff um, pseudo-false Marxism, but to miss the fact that the Marxist toolkit, the Marxist pattern of thought, the Marxist mode of analysis can be implanted across other lines of social stratification and has been and is marching that way. And that's exactly what we saw happen by the end of the 60s as people like Marcuse completely diverted the direction of Marxism. We see that in Freire, who completely diverted uh, what it means to be marginal and central, what it means to be conscious, changed. Freire basically repackaged George Lukács' arguments about class consciousness in his book History and Class Consciousness from 1923, but Freire puts it in terms of conscientization into critical consciousness, which is this new and different way of thinking. Class consciousness and critical consciousness are not the same thing. Critical consciousness and identity politics and kind of related domains is woke. It is the Freirean repackaging into this kind of neo-Marxist framework out of the old Marxist framework of Lukács brings about the new thing. It is the Marxist engine stuck somewhere else. And so it's, this is, this, I don't see a lot of clarity on this point when I read anybody from the 80s or the 90s. Um, and we see Gail Rubin here struggling around it. Anyway, she's still taking her shots at feminism. The relationship, she says, between feminist, between feminism and a radical theory of sexual oppression is similar. Feminist Conceptual tools were developed to detect and analyze gender-based hierarchies. To the extent that those overlap with erotic stratifications, feminist theory has some explanatory power. But as issues become less those of gender and more those of sexuality, feminist analysis has become misleading and often irrelevant. Feminist thought simply lacks angles of vision which can fully encompass the social organization of sexuality. The criteria of relevance in feminist thought do not allow it to see or assess critical power relations in the area of sexuality. 
Okay, so here's where I agree and disagree with what Gail Rubin's saying. She's right that you can't subsume sexuality under feminism, that it's sex and sexuality are different, or sex, gender, and sexuality are different, so you can't use one mode of analysis. But the problem is that she still wants to use a Marxist engine. Feminism had put the Marxist engine in in their analysis of gender-based hierarchies, and now she wants to use the same bad engine. She says we need to study these things differently, but then using the same conceptual framework, which is the Marxist social constructivist nightmare that's led us where we are. So yes, but with a massive your your method sucks too, Gail, because you're still caught in the leftist, the dialectical leftist framework that everything on the left has been since about 1830, when Hegel died, 1831, when Hegel died, and the young Hegelians rose to prominence as a left-wing force in Europe. In the long run, she tells us, feminist, feminism's critique of gender hierarchy must be incorporated into a radical theory of sex, and the critique of sexual oppression should enrich feminism, but an autonomous theory and politics specific to sexuality must be developed. It'd be interesting for me to pull up Judith Butler's books from 1990 and 1993, which are Gender Trouble and then Bodies That Matter, to see if she cites Gail Rubin at the, on this point. It is, mis- it is a mistake to substitute feminism for Marxism as the last word on social theory. Feminism is no more capable than Marxism of being the ultimate and complete account of all social inequality, nor is feminism the residual theory which can take care of everything to which Marx did not attend. These critical tools were fashioned to handle every or to handle very specific specific areas of social activity, other areas of social life, their forms of power, their character and their characteristic modes of oppression, need their own conceptual implements. In this essay have argued for theoretical as well as sexual pluralism. And so what's actually happening here is that she's saying that uh, the Marxist engine has to be... The distinction is, are we talking about Marxism, qua Marxism, or are we talking about Marxism as what it really is, which is dialectical leftism? And the dialectical leftist lens is being applied in all these domains, and she says, well... It's good at what it does in Marxism. It's good at what it does in feminism, but it doesn't comp- constitute sex, sex and sexuality. So we need to have a separate one of those for that. And that's going to become queer theory. And the dialectical leftist process, which is what I frequent, when I say race Marxism, what I really mean is race dialectical leftism. When we say actual Marxism, what we would be saying is um, economic or material dialectical leftism. Dialectical leftism is the thing. It's material. It is, it is, achieving leftist goals through the Hegelian style dialectic. I've got, I know I just lost like three quarters of you if you don't keep up with everything I do, but I've got like a bajillion things out about that. And so you can go listen to me talk about Hegel. Uh, you can go listen to me talk about the theology of Marxism. I've got podcasts on both of those things and the role of this dialectical leftism thing that it is. So anyway, now we finally get to the conclusion. We're going to wrap up here. She begins with a quote cited to a Colette, 1982, these pleasures, which we lightly call physical. That's all it says. That's the whole quote with ellipsis before and after. Like gender, she says, sexuality is political. It is organized into systems of power, which reward and encourage some individuals and activities while punishing and suppressing others. So that we're going to put the Marxist engine into understanding sexuality like the capitalist organization of labor and its distribution of rewards and powers the modern sexual system has been the object of political struggle since it emerged and has and has evolved but and and it has evolved but if the disputes between labor and capital are mystified sexual conflicts are completely camouflaged by ideology of course 
She's saying queer theory, which is what emerges out of this paper, is queer Marxism. In the exact same sense that critical race theory is race Marxism. The legislative restructuring that took place at the end of the 19th century and in the early decades of the 20th century was a refracted response to the emergence of the modern erotic system. During that period, new erotic communities formed. It became possible to be a male homosexual or a lesbian in a way that it, that it had not been pri- previously. Mass-produced erotica became available, and the possibilities for sexual commerce expanded. <laughs> now do OnlyFans. The first homosexual rights organizations were formed, and the first analysis, analyses of sexual oppression were articulated. The repression of the 1950s was in part a backlash to the expansion of sexual communities and possibilities which took place during World War II. During the 1950s, gay rights organizations were established, the Kinsey reports were published, and lesbian literature flourished. The 1950s were a formative as well as a repressive era. The current right-wing sexual counter-offensive is in part a reaction to the sexual liberalization which really liberation, of the 1960s and early 1970s. That was a neo-Marxist sex program largely under Marcuse. Not entirely. I mean, we have Wilhelm Reich, who wrote during the World War II era, to credit with some of this as well, uh, a lot of it. Um, And it was a gigantic movement in its own right. Moreover, it has brought about a unified and self-conscious coalition of sexual radicals. In one sense, what is now occurring is the emergence of a new sexual movement aware of new issues and seeking a new theoretical basis, which is going to be heavily post-structural queer theory. The sexual system is shifting once again. We are seeing many symptoms of its change. Yeah, post-structural feminism is dominating over older forms of feminism, and we have to remember that we're actually dealing with what is ultimately Marxism, because we just heard that that's how we're going to do all these social analyses, because that's the only social analysis the left has done since 1830. In Western culture, sex is taken all too seriously. A person is not considered immoral, is not sent to prison, and is not expelled from his or her, no, sorry, her or his family for enjoying spicy cuisine but an individual may go through all this and more for enjoying shoe leather. Ultimately, of what possible social significance, get ready for a trigger warning, ultimately, of what possible social significance is it if a person likes to masturbate over a shoe? It may even be non-consensual, but since we do not ask permission of our shoes to wear them, it hardly seems necessary to obtain dispensation to come on them. It really says that. If sex is taken too seriously, sexual persecution is not taken seriously enough. There is a uh, systematic mistreatment of individuals and communities on the basis of erotic taste or behavior. There are serious penalties for belonging to the various sexual occupational castes. The sexuality of the young is denied. Gail. Adult sexuality is often treated like a variety of nuclear waste. And the graphic representation of sex takes place in a mire of legal and social circumlocution. Remember, she defended child porn. Specific populations bear the brunt of the current system of erotic power, but their persecution upholds a system that affects everyone. The 1980s have already been a time of great sexual suffering. They have also been a time of ferment and new possibility. It is up to all of us to try to prevent more barbarism and to encourage erotic creativity. 
Those who consider themselves progressive need to examine their preconceptions, update their sexual educations, and acquaint themselves with the existence and operation of sexual hierarchy. It is time to recognize the political dimensions of erotic life. With that, I give you the birth of queer theory. That is where queer theory came from. This is the paper, Thinking Sex, by Gail Rubin, from 1984. It is time to recognize the political dimensions of erotic life. Thinking Sex notes for a radical theory of the politics of sexuality, which became queer theory. This is where it came from. Now you hear what it defends. I'm not going to rehash it all. I will mention the whole child porn and man-boy love thing again, though. I will mention them. I don't really care about the kinks. I don't really care about the homosexuality. I don't really care about a lot of it. I'm going to go ahead and mention the grooming of kids, pedophilia, and child porn, which are extensively defended. I'm going to go ahead and mention the inability to detect that there is a fundamental difference between degeneracy uh, and people doing things in the privacy of their own homes uh, between consenting adults. There is a fundamental difference. I'm going to remind you that discernment is possible for adults who are not somehow psychologically crippled, as queer theorists seem to be, who can't tell that these distinctions exist. And I'm going to tell you again that this is where we see the birth of queer theory that has led to the groomer schools, to the drag queen story hour, and to so many other things that we're supposed to swallow as though they're normal, as though they're acceptable, and as though they stand on behalf of the movement that Gail Rubin's trying to attach her radical politics of sexuality to, which is a legitimate gay civil rights movement that was waged from the 1950s in some sense up into maybe the, around 2010 or so, not quite that late, uh, with tremendous success for gay civil liberties, Here is a queer theory parasite attached onto it and brought with it all of these kinks, all of these perversions, all of this inability to distinguish all of this uh, stuff that has to do with the sexualization of children, whether through pornography, child pornography, or whether through um, advocating for cross-generational encounters and man-boy love. So thank you for listening to the... Introduction to Queer Theory paper, Gail Rubin's Thinking Sex. Um, Back to regularly scheduled content. I'm going to kind of veer into more queer theory as we go forward here and there, but I'm still sticking in education. Now you have a much better sense of where queer theory came from, and even from its very root, that it had a rotten, rotten heart that we all should have been alarmed about, that should have never been given so-called intellectual or academic affirmative action, that never should have been protected, that should have been stopped recognized and stopped decades ago and that because we were not vigilant in doing so and that we were too permissive in in what we've allowed we've now found ourselves in this mess and the threat of a dangerous overreaction in the other direction.